everyone, and welcome back to the Dead Letters Podcast. I'm your host, VP Morris. This episode is going to be the season one finale. I can't believe it's already here. The ending scene in today's episode has been an idea in my head for almost two years now, and I'm so thrilled that I get to share it with you all right now. But first, I want to thank my family, friends, and online supporters who have offered me words of encouragement, feedback, and have shared the show with others. That means so much to me, and I'm thankful for everyone who has listened and helped out so far. You can stay up to date with information about what's going to happen next with the show by following on social media at Dead Letters Pod on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me at T Wright Repeat, that's T E A W R I T E Repeat, on Twitter, Instagram, and Minds.com. I have a few guest appearances on some horror related podcasts coming up in the next few months, so be on the lookout for those as well. Please continue to share the show with others so they can enjoy the story of the Dead Letters as well. Now for the recap. Fiona received her third dead letter, along with the bombshell that her father is an enforcer for the mob. Charlotte warns her of a man in a black suit and a red tie, and that if she sees him, she must flee to her family's cabin. While reading her work at an end-of-semester showcase, a man matching that description appears in the audience. Now, let's get into it. The Dead Letters Podcast. Episode 11, I've Been Waiting for You. I was running. That's all I remember. I didn't know how I got away from the man with the red tie. I didn't know how I lost track of Marco, but I found myself running through the dark soccer field to the west side of campus. My feet crunched on the brown grass as I made my way to the goal at the other end of the field. The huffs and puffs of labored breathing followed behind me, confirming what I had feared. The man with the red tie was sprinting to catch me. Behind the goal of the soccer field, there was a small public park that was thick with tall oaks and evergreens. If I could just make it there, into those woods, and stay away from the paths, I would be fine. My exhausted muscles and burning lungs begged me to slow down, but I couldn't. I clenched my jaw and forced myself to run as fast as I possibly could. The dark tree line of the park was getting closer. Their lovely balsam scent hung in the air. I was just a few steps away from ducking for cover in the shelter of their branches when I felt a hand touch me. At first, it was just a nudge, and then the man's full grip caught hold of my scarf and yanked it tight. I stumbled forward, but I refused to fall down. In one quick motion, I pulled the ends of my scarf out, freeing myself from his grasp. I picked up my pace once again, dashing into the greenery, leaving the man in the red tie holding my scarf. The dark embrace of the trees allowed me to slow down, where I was going so I wouldn't fall. I crept on, for what felt like hours, inching through the trees, branches scraping at my cheeks and, and pine needles lodging themselves into my disheveled hair. Every so often there would be a rustling behind me, but I couldn't determine if it was the man or just some nocturnal animal. By the time I started to worry if I'd be lost in these woods forever, I saw lights peek out through the branches. I made my way towards them until I could see the source of the light, a 24-hour gas station, and not just any gas station, a gas station with an ATM out front. Once I weaseled my way out of the woods, I rushed through the asphalt parking lot to the front of the store. Without thinking twice, I jammed my parents' debit card into the machine and took out the maximum amount, $1,000. Just as I stuffed my backpack with cash, I saw an older man with a yellow light on the roof of his car that read taxi pull up to the first pump. The old taxi driver got out of the car and made his way into the store. He caught sight of me and laughed. Have a roll in the woods? He joked at my disheveled appearance. No, I snapped. I got lost. He shrugged his shoulders and gave me a playful smile as he walked inside. I opened the door to the mini-mart to see him hand over a few dollar bills to the cashier. Hey, are you on duty? I shouted at him. No, ma'am, he answered. On my way home after a ten-hour shift. Can you take one last fare? I asked him. Please. 
Listen, miss, I've been dreaming about putting on my comfy pants and settling down into my chair and eating my wife's roast beef since seven this morning. I don't think I can wait anymore, he said. I'll pay double, he turned and raised an eyebrow. In cash, I added. You got yourself a deal. I slid into the back seat, barely noticing that the cracked plastic fabric that looked like it had been upholstered 20 years ago. As soon as he filled up on gas, he got in the front seat and asked where to. I told him the nearest bus station. Where are you headed from there? He asked as he pulled away from the pump. Upstate, I answered, not wanting to give him any details. Good luck with that. It's gonna snow all night. Bet you'll get a foot of snow where you're going, he said. As soon as we were about to merge onto the main road, I look back to see the man with the red tie push his way out from between two Douglas firs and step out onto the gas station parking lot. I threw my body down on the passenger seat, hoping the man didn't see me leaving in a cab. Looks like you're in a little more trouble than getting lost. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I just have to make it to the bus stop, I told him. Twenty minutes later, he dropped me off at the station. I happily handed him $50 for a $25 ride. I went inside the dinky little station in my college's town and looked at the departure boards for Sterling City, but none of the buses were going there. Hello? I said, approaching an elderly ticket agent. How do I get to Sterling City? You gotta take the bus to Poughkeepsie and then transfer at that station for the Lake George-bound bus line. It's the fifth stop on the line, she explained. I handed her some cash in exchange for the tickets. The Poughkeepsie bus is departing in five minutes, she told me with a stern face, clearly uninterested whether or not I made the bus. The next one's in two hours. I snatched the tickets from her hands and dashed away, while she called behind me, waving a receipt. I didn't need one if I was going to end up dead. With barely any time to spare, I rushed on the bus and took a seat. I thought as soon as the bus pulled out of the station, I'd feel a sense of relief, but I only felt worse. A million questions zoomed in my head. Where were my parents? Why hadn't they called? Who was that man in the red tie? And Marco, is he okay? I sat there in silence for an hour and a half, biting my nails and pulling on the dry skin on my lip. I couldn't call anyone. I turned off my cell phone for fear that they could track my movements. I just rode along in agony, waiting for this leg of my journey to be over with. We finally pulled into the Poughkeepsie station. I leapt out of my seat and ran off the bus. I walked around the exterior of the station until I found a payphone. I dropped a loose quarter in the machine and dialed my mother's number. It would strain to voicemail. Mom, it's me. I'm fine for now. Some guy is following me. I'm heading up to the place we talked about earlier. My phone is off, but I'll check in again in a few hours. Please call, okay? Love you. I hung up and dialed Marco. Hello? Marco, I whispered. Fiona, where are you? Are you okay? I could tell he was worried. I'm going to the cabin. I'm on my way there. I'm going to stay there until the coast is clear, I told him. How long are you going to be there? He asked. I don't know. Where are you? Back in the dorm. Those guys that came after us, well, they didn't seem to care too much about me once we separated and- Are you sure you're gonna be alright there alone? I can come up. I have to do this by myself. You read my letter. You know I can't disobey her. He didn't argue. He had seen Heather's scars and knew her story. He did not want me to suffer a similar fate, even if we couldn't find a logical explanation for Charlotte's letters. Be careful, and when this is over, come back to me. And if you need me, let me know. I knew he was trying to sound strong and supportive, but it must have been killing him to let me go alone. I will, I promise. I have to go. Talk soon. We said our goodbyes and I put the receiver back in its place. I had to wait another half an hour for my connection. As much as I wanted to get away, I was thankful for the time to walk to a small grocery store down the street and stock up on the essentials like toilet paper and the blandest food I could find. My second bus ride started out much more peaceful than the first one. For starters, the seats were about two-thirds as full, allowing me to have a row to myself, and I was comforted in the thought of hiding out in a remote and little-known town. 
but the peacefulness didn't last as the snowflakes began to fall outside the bus. And the realization that I was going to have to walk a mile and a half up a dark country road in the snow to get to the cabin dawned on me. The snow had accumulated about three inches on the ground by the time we stopped in Sterling City. I hoped that maybe there would be taxis at the bus station waiting to take travelers home, but that hope was quickly dashed away when I saw the station was a little more than a parking lot with a ticket booth than an actual transportation hub. I stepped out of the bus and scanned my surroundings, fearing that I had been followed. There were two other buses in the lot, but they were dark and empty. A handful of cars were scattered about the area, some containing the family members or friends of the bus travelers, waiting for them to come home. The man in the red tie was nowhere to be found. No one in the vicinity looked like they had anything to do with the Irish mob in Boston. I reached into my backpack and pulled out the directions to the cabin. I knew it was a good idea to have written them down instead of saving them on my phone. Standing there under a dim street light, I read what I was supposed to do. Follow Main Street until I turn right on Gallows Hill Avenue. I'd have to follow the curve of Gallows Hill up an incline until I reached Emerald Street towards the top of the hill. Our cabin would be the sixth one on the left. I started my journey, taking the sidewalk that extended out from the bus station down the main road. There were a handful of little businesses all lined in a row down the street, like something you might have seen in the 1950s. It was dark and after hours. The glowing light of the small Chinese takeout place and the laundromat made me feel somewhat comforted that people were still around. As I walked by, I gazed into the window of the laundromat. A gray-haired woman and her young daughter folded their laundry on a long table in the middle of the store. An old man with a pot belly slammed the lid of a washing machine closed and started it. He turned and saw me staring. He gave me a toothy grin, or as toothy as he could, with his missing teeth, and waved. I shuddered and picked up my pace. Knowing that the laundromat was still open wasn't a comfort after all. The neatly paved sidewalk of Main Street started to curve and crumble at the intersection I came upon. One small traffic light blinked yellow. The town wasn't even populated enough to have a real stoplight. I peered past the blinking light and made out a green street sign at the other end of the intersection. It was Gallows Hill Avenue. The road curved up and to the left. There was nothing but blackness up the road, and I could only make out a small shoulder highlighted with white paint next to the rocky side of the hill the roadway was carved into. I swallowed hard and forced myself to step off the sidewalk and cross onto Gallows Hill. Treading upwards, I kept looking for a sign for Emerald Street, but the road just slowly spun itself up and up over the hill with no cross streets. Fearing I had missed something, I decided to turn back around a few paces to get my bearings, but was met with the glare of headlights. I jumped back and clutched the rocky edge on the side of the road as the driver blared his horn at me. My heart pounded in my head and my eyes were filled with flashing colors from seeing such bright lights in pitch darkness. I steadied myself for a moment, not letting myself break down crying from the fear and the exhaustion. With clearer vision and a calmer disposition, I trudged up. Climbing up higher on the hill, I turned back every few steps to make sure I wasn't going to get hit by another advancing car. Soon the road flattened out and it was clear I was at the top. The snow was starting to come down now, hard, almost making it a whiteout when I discovered I was at an intersection. The whiteness of the snow caught the light on the full moon and it made it easier to see. The sign for Emerald Street came into view. I dashed down the street, counting the cabins as I went by. All the structures looked completely abandoned for the winter, but I didn't let the eeriness of it bother me. I was a few yards past the fifth cabin when a small brown building came into view. That has to be it, I thought. I rushed up to the entryway, leaving footprints in the snow. But then I remembered. I didn't have a key. 
My stomach dropped and I felt like I could throw up right then and there. I couldn't get inside. I would be stuck out here in the cold and the snow with no place to go. I turned over the rocks and dead potted plants that lined the entryway, but no key had been stashed away. I was about to give up hope when I reached up and put my hand over the outside light fixture. A small metal item fell to the ground with a clink. A silver key laid out in the snow before me. I scooped it up in my freezing hands and got inside. My fingertips inched across the wall until I found a light switch and it turned on. The small wood panel living room came into focus. I ran to the kitchen and turned on the tap. It gurgled for a moment, but water soon came pouring out of the faucet. Thank you, I muttered to the sky as if God was listening. Electricity and water in this place was nothing short of a miracle. There was a pellet burning stove in the middle of the living room and I quickly got it working. Once the flames inside the black metal stove were burning hot and bright, I tore off the outer layer of my clothing and let them drip dry in the coat closet. I didn't intend to, but I curled up on the sofa, pulled a mothball smelling afghan over me, and fell asleep. The next morning, I was awoken by the bright light coming in from the sliding glass door to the back of the property. During the night, about 10 inches fell, covering every surface with thick, cold powder. The snow reflected the morning sun's rays, making everything a thousand times brighter. Taking a risk, I turned on my phone, hoping to see missed calls and texts from my family. Still nothing. I shut my phone down again and tried to busy myself for the day. I pulled all the items I got from Heather out of my backpack, pleased with myself for having shoved them in the bag before I took off for the reading. I gazed at some of the photographs of an African-American family. One of them was standing next to a Christmas tree in a tiny apartment. In a different picture, a little black girl dressed in a flowing white gown and had roses in her curling hair as she stood next to a man who looked Indian with an all-white cotton suit and shawl draped over him. I looked at the two pictures and realized that one of the girls in the Christmas photos was the same as the bride in this photo. I dug through more of these mementos that Heather had saved throughout the years. There was a newspaper clipping about the creed of light cult shootings from the 1970s, another about a suburban housewife in 1959 inventing some kind of medical equipment in her home but later being arrested for arson. I smirked. I didn't understand what any of these things meant or what they had to do with Charlotte and her letters. I fumbled through the bag and pulled out a few more dead letters. These were sent to the women who came before me but I couldn't get my mind to focus on them. I was too worried about my own family's safety to care about these women from the past. I packed up all the papers and photographs and put them back in my bag for safekeeping. I'd get to this later, I thought. Time went by and the afternoon sun began to melt the layer of snow that had fallen the night before. Suddenly the walls of the cabin were compressing. I needed to get out of this place. With my coat and hat on, I marched out the front door, not really knowing where I was. Emerald Street was silent. No cars were moving. No one was at home at any of the cabins that I could see down the road, but the silence was pierced by the sound of a car door slamming. Turning towards the noise, I was able to spot a black van two doors down. The shaggy-looking man with the red tie was standing next to the driver's side door. He hadn't spotted me yet, as he was busy putting on his snow boots and walking down the ice-covered streets. I backed away slowly and turned around. I looked down the hill at the backside of the cabin and before me stretches a vast frozen lake with an island in the middle. I take off in its direction. Rushing down the slanting hill, I made my way to the bank and stared out at the frozen paradise that surrounded me. A dog's bark startled me as it echoed through the otherwise silent atmosphere. I jumped. Sorry, didn't mean to scare ya, a voice called out. A middle-aged woman and her golden retriever stood several yards away from me. No worries, I whispered, not wanting my voice to travel. 
The woman threw a yellow tennis ball in my direction, and the dog leaped through the snow after it. The woman came closer to me. I normally don't come out here, but Cody sure does love to play in the snow. I smiled at the dog, but turned my attention back to the lake and to the island in the center of it. I shifted slightly. I could see a red building, standing in ruins amongst the trees. What's that building there? I asked the woman as she threw the ball again. She looked at me with a knowing expression on her face. Woodburn Sanitarium. Pretty famous with all those ghost hunters. Suppose you've heard of it? No, I haven't. It's my first time here, I said. You're technically not allowed to go on the island anymore, but a bunch of thrill-seekers do it all the time. The cops really don't care, she chuckled. My mind flashed to Charlotte's second letter. She was on an island. She was staying in a building she said looked like a red, gothic castle. This was it. I looked down at the ice that stretched from the bank to the island. I stepped forward, putting my weight on it. It was thick, and it could support me. I took two more paces and waited. The ice didn't break or crumble beneath me. Hey, what are you doing? The woman called out. I turned back to her. I'm going to go look at it, I said. Crazy kid. Be careful, but... Suit yourself. My boots were warm, but barely sturdy enough to handle a walk on ice. My feet kept slipping out from under me, but I pushed on. I toppled forward twice, but I made myself get back up, carrying on as if the red towering building was a beacon calling me home. Hey! A voice called out behind me. I snapped my head around. The man with the red tie was about to step on the ice. Standing in place, I watched in terror as he ran after me. But after a few steps, he slipped. A crack ran out across the lake as his head collided with the ice. He didn't get up. He didn't move at all. He was out cold for the time being, and all I could do was press on. I regained solid footing as I climbed the rocky shore of the island. Much like the day before, pine needles scraped at my skin as I waded through the trees, but this time, I wasn't scared of the man behind me. Charlotte had a plan, I thought. Something was here to protect me. I walked through an overgrown field of snow-covered tall grass until I was standing there, before the Woodburn Sanitarium. The front door was hanging off its hinges. I pushed it aside and walked in. Inside, the walls were covered with graffiti, but I didn't stop to read it. I stepped up the stairs and saw a black door in front of me. I pushed it open. The room was vast, but littered with the remains of dozens of broken rocking chairs scattered about the room. It was unsettling, and I closed the door. Venturing on, I peeked through the doorways into bedrooms and doctor's offices, but nothing called to me until I got to the fourth floor. There was a room that contained four metal bed frames that were twisted and thrown about the room. One soiled mattress remained on the bed in the corner, while the rest were bare. The room was covered in peeling wallpaper that had, a f that had a faded print of yellow roses. It felt cold in that room, colder than it should have been. My stomach turned with a strange pang of nausea. I could barely identify the sensation, but it felt like dread, or the feeling of seeing something you weren't supposed to see. At the top of the wall, the yellow wallpaper was almost completely pulled down. There was writing underneath it, written in old-fashioned looping penmanship, far different from the bright, spray-painted graffiti on the first floor. I hoisted myself up so I could stand on the soiled cot. The boost allowed me to read it more clearly. The first thing I noticed was that the writing was written in ink, but it was also carved into the walls with some sort of tool, like a blunt pair of scissors. The second thing I noticed was that the words looped and cascaded in the same manner as Charlotte's writing. My heart skipped a beat as I read her words. They are coming. Won't survive the night. But I did not fail. I know I did not. She will prove it. She will prove you wrong. My heart ached as I read her writing. What did those doctors do to her? I put my hand on the wall and touched her writing. I'm sorry no one believed you, Charlotte. 
A tear rolled down my cheek as I thought of her dark fate. I wiped it away with my sleeve and hopped down from the bed. Maybe this is what she wanted. Someone to know that she existed, to understand her pain. I exited what used to be Charlotte's room and headed downstairs. I couldn't help but wonder, what did she mean by not failing? Who was supposed to prove her right? I found my way back to the first floor and was about to exit the building in hopes of finding a place to hide from the man when he came to, but something stopped me. It was a creak. I stood there and listened. It creaked again and again. It sounded like it was right above me. What was it? I asked myself. The answer came to me in a flash. It was a rocking chair. As if on autopilot, I turned around and marched up the stairs towards the source of the sound. Fear raced through my veins, but I couldn't turn around now and run away. I put my hand on the black door and pushed it open. I stood there in the doorway and clutched the threshold. The room wasn't this dark and decrepit place it was a moment ago. The floor was perfectly polished. The room was painted with a crisp cream color and all of the chairs were lined up against the wall. They were in perfect condition with none of them bent and broken in the way I had seen minutes ago, but the rocking noise picked up again. And I turned my head towards it. There was a woman in the chair, rocking it back and forth. She had on a long white and lacy gown that stretched down past her feet. She had pale skin with long brown hair. But the most striking thing of all was she had my eyes, one blue-gray, one brown, and they glowed as if they were lit by a flame on the inside. Like in the dream with Grace, I knew that this was Charlotte. She smiled at me and stopped her rocking. Fiona, I've been waiting for you.